Welcome to the Successful Farming Soil Health Podcast, where we tell the stories and share the lessons of leaders in the modern soil health movement. Thank you for joining us. Here's Successful Farming Crops Editor, Bill Spiegel. For more than three decades, Doug Peterson has worked on the front lines trying to improve the natural resource concerns of Missouri farmers. It has not been until recently, however, that his employer, The Natural Resources Conservation Service has taken a broad-spectrum approach toward improving the function of soils through soil health. Soil health is a practice that Peterson is passionate about. He grew up on a diversified grain and livestock farm in northwest Missouri and has served a variety of positions in the NRCS during his career. He now is the Regional Soil Health Specialist for Iowa and Missouri in the agency's Soil Health Division. Peterson has seen a lot in 30 years within RCS, including ways in which traditional erosion control practices have failed, while new soil health programs and practices show great promise. One of his aha moments occurred more than a decade ago, when a farmer's new terraces failed within a few years. You know, at that time, terraces was one of our big practices for soil erosion protection, and and so we had a field that had that had, had terraces built in it a couple of years prior to me coming into that county and had a, had a rainfall event after I had been there a year or two and had some pretty good erosion even in these terraced fields. A lot of the terraced fields were silted full. So we had a program to clean them out. And then, and then lo and behold, a couple of years later, the same thing happened again. I was going, here's our you know, at the time, one of our best practices to control erosion, and it wouldn't do it. I mean, there there had to be something uh, else that was going on. And so I'd had a couple things happen in our own operation that kind of led me to look at the soil a little different, more holistically, I guess you would say, look at the biology. When NRCS offered new training programs for soil health, Peterson quickly volunteered. He dug into such topics as aggregate stability and learned infield demonstrations such as the slake test, which helped define water infiltration and how soil aggregation impacts that characteristic. And once I saw those demos, you know, it wasn't a light bulb moment. It was a, it was a big spotlight moment for me. Um, and so at that point, I realized that a lot of the practices that we had been doing within RCS really didn't focus on the root cause of the problem. They focused on symptoms. They were trying to address symptoms of that poor soil function. Doug, that's interesting. And I've, I've seen your presentation. It really just kind of boggles the mind at how quickly tilled soils can disperse and basically mm-hmm. explode. Going back to this time, was this kind of at the very cusp of the whole soil health movement, was it very early on? How long ago were we talking here? Yeah, 2008, I think, 2009. I was thinking about soil health, but I didn't know the terminology. I didn't understand until I went to that training. And really, it goes back to, as I understand it, most of our of our understanding now about agri-stability has been stimulated from some ARS researchers in the late 90s that discovered some organisms in the soil that created these biotic glues that glued these soil aggregates together. Then it took another 10 years for that research to make it to the natural resource world for NRCS to start teaching this aggregate stability. And that was in the late 2000s, 2008, 2009. And now here we are 10 years later still trying to get that message out to producers across the country. Peterson says that to understand where production agriculture is today, 
we've got to take a close look at the history of cultivation. The act of tilling the soil is not new, but history suggests tillage has long been known to be destructive to soil. I believe, and I thought about this for a long time, trying to understand tillage in our society, right? I mean, we're all taught, you know, you've got to till the soil to increase water infiltration. You've got to till the soil to kill weeds. You've got to till the soil to make a good seedbed, right? We, and we were all taught that by our fathers who were taught that by their grandfathers and, and on and on and on, right? And and that, that mentality of the benefits of tillage really goes across the globe. It grows across, you know, religion, societies. It goes everywhere. And so to understand why tillage is so pervasive across the globe, you got to go back to, I think, the beginning of tillage, right? What, what's the history of tillage in mankind? So probably somewhere in the Middle East. And so, you know, why did they till at that point? Well, they had a plant that they wanted to, everything would have been perennial vegetation, but they had a plant, they wanted to eat more of it or, or you know, something, get the seeds off of it, get the leaves off of it. So to to propagate whatever that plant was, they had to kill the perennial vegetation that was there. So they came in with with a hoe or a or a, a, a horn or a stick, killed the perennial vegetation, and planted their planted whatever it was they wanted. And and, and what they what they planted really doesn't matter. The the most important question is, what was the soil like when they originally tilled up that? that little strip or, or plot of prairie grass that they, that they tilled up. Um, it would have been high organic matter. It would have been high biologic activity. It would have been high aggregate stability. And, and today we know as they would have tilled that soil, initially they would have increased a little bit of infiltration with that fluffing of that high organic matter soil. They would have increased biologic activity, which would have increased mineralization. So tillage in those high organic matter soils was kind of like fertilizer, right? It revved up the biology, it revved up mineralization, and it increased productivity. But we also know now after two, three, four, five, six years of tillage, it burns that carbon it reduces infiltration, and so productivity would have went down. And so back in those days, what would they have done when productivity – because you have to think about it, their their family's survival depended on the production of that strip, right? When that production went down, they didn't go to Walmart and buy more groceries, right? They didn't, they didn't add fertilizer. Hey, this strip is not productive anymore. Let's move over here to another strip. And what kind of soil was it? High organic matter, high agri-stability, high biologic activity, very productive. The land that they abandoned would have revegetated, rebuilt organic matter, rebuilt biologic activity, rebuilt agri-stability, right? It is a cycle that has repeated itself in the newly farmed lands of the United States, Peterson says. So, so let's jump to the Midwest, okay? When, when the Midwest was sat, settled, and you, and you mentioned plowing, and, it, and so they came in, they didn't have chemicals, right? They had to eliminate that perennial vegetation, that prairie sod that was here. What was that soil like where they did that? High organic matter, high biologic activity, high aggregate stability. And so production was pretty awesome for two, three, four, five years. And so these farmers had their 40 or their 80 or their 160 or whatever it was. And because they had horses and cows and milk cows and sheep and some other things, they didn't farm. They didn't till their whole 80 acres. They tilled a small area of it. And as production on that small area went down, then 
they moved and went to another small section, allowing the area that they had slightly degraded to regenerate. It's only really been in, the, in about the last 50 or 60 years that we've had large scale, complete tillage year after year for decade after decade. And that came about because, you know, after World War II, we had all this cheap NPK, cheap petroleum. So we didn't have to raise grass for horses or cows. We thought that production, soil production, was simply based on nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, maybe a little lime to to deal with pH, but it was basically NP and K. And what we didn't realize was that real production was based on NP and K plus organic matter, plus aggregate stability to get water to infiltrate, plus biologic activity to hold and cycle nutrients efficiently. And so we kind of we kind of missed part of that land healing process that others uh, had used. That's led us to what we have today: the degradation of the land across the across the Midwest, erosion rates that are astronomically high compared to soil regeneration rates, and water quality issues all across the country. Dead zones, you know, literally hundreds of dead zones across the country. But the good news is we can fix that. We understand now and and have that technology with with the no-till practices that we have with cover crops integrating livestock into these cropland systems we understand now how to regenerate those degraded soil conditions and and make them more productive while uh, in, improving the environmental resources of this country coming up Doug Peterson explains the physical features of healthy soil and how producers can identify these soils on their farms Plus, if your soil isn't healthy, how to begin the soil health journey. So stick around. Get the latest ag news, markets, weather, and more when you sign up for today's news from Successful Farming. Register at agriculture.com newsletter for today's news. The free Successful Farming e-newsletter. Once a day, you'll get an email packed with relevant news hitting the ag industry online and around the nation along with the three big things happening today. Visit agriculture.com newsletter to subscribe to today's news from Successful Farming. Now you can read Successful Farming magazine on your tablet or smartphone. Each issue includes ideas you can take with you to the field, pasture, barn, or even the shop. With the Texter app, you can enjoy over 200 magazines anytime you want. The Texter app is only $9.95 per month, and you can start enjoying your digital editions of Successful Farming Magazine today. Successful Farming Magazine is for families who make farming and ranching their business. Visit Texter.com and subscribe today. So, Doug, we have that knowledge now. Um, uh, but kind of go back to just the basics of, of soil health and regenerative agriculture. Well, I mean, we, we want soil that's going to function. It's going to infiltrate water. It's going to grow crops. It's going to produce food and fiber. We want soil that's not going to uh, cause environmental issues. It's not going to erode. It's not going to leak nutrients and end have it function properly in whatever type of production system a, a person wants. If they want to, you know, grow cows on grass, that it does it in that type of system. If they, if they want to grow row crops, that it, that it does it in that kind of a system as well, or, or orchards or whatever other type of land use they want to, to do. But how, how do we know then that we have healthy soils? 
Right. You know what I, I mean? I think I think if you if you understand soil, you, you can look at the soil just like you can look at a person and see if they're pasty and pale or if they're sweating because they have a fever. I can walk out and look at a field and I can look at the aggregation in that field and tell you if water will infiltrate or if water is going to run off. I can look at it and tell you if it's going to have high temperatures in the summer because it's bare or not. Um, it, it's not really hard to, to look at soil once you understand what we need to really look for. You know, what is that that we need to look for? Well, we need to look for aggregation in the soil. We need to we need to look at the soil. Does it does it collapse and dissolve like our demonstrations show? Um, that's one of the things that we do even out out in a field. Um, one of the first things I'll do with a farmer is to do that slake test um, right in the field um, with a with a cup or a or a water bottle or or whatever we can use right there. Um, that's that's one of the best indicators of of overall soil function is if we can get the soil to hold together in the presence of water, water will infiltrate. That tells us a bunch of things. That tells us, one, we're probably going to we're going to have uh, better aggregate stability. We're going to have better biologic activity, which is going to translate into a better nutrient cycle. Less nutrients are going to be leached and lost. More nutrients are going to go in. A higher percentage of the nutrients we apply is going to go into the crops that we want to grow. We can also look at, is the soil bare or not? Does it have good ground cover, which translates to to protection for those uh, organisms in the soil? Generally, generally we, we split it up into, into two sides. One is protection of that soil biological system. Um, we do that by, one, eliminating disturbance, eliminating tillage. Um, two, providing ground cover. Those two things begin the protection of that soil as biological habitat. And then the other side of the, the other side of the circle is begin to feed it, begin to feed it with diverse plants, um, more than just corn and soybeans, have all four plant types, warm season, cool season, grass and broadleaf. Then the fourth thing is to have a, a living root in that soil all year long. The number one food source for those soil organisms is the exudates off of a living root. In a, in a traditional corn and soybean system, we only have a living root really for three months, you know, or so given off exudates. We may have, we may have that plant standing in that field longer, but it really doesn't, it, it's not living and active. So we need to, we need to uh, change that from three months to, to 12 months. You know, I always, I always ask people, you know, uh, in meetings, you know, how, how long can you, can you survive if you only ate for three months out of the year? And there's not many, very many of us that could, right? But yet that's what we ask the biology to do. You know, you, you're supposed to cycle nutrients for me those three months, but, but the rest of the year, I'm just not going to feed you. It doesn't work that way. So for years, Doug, you know, we looked at people who maybe double cropped or, you know, putting more living roots in the soil as, as that was a degrading thing to do. I remember when I was a kid and, and our, our neighbor down the road put double crop soybeans in. And I mean, it was a mess because we didn't have all the tools that we have today. But I, I, he was kind of a laughing stock because my gosh, you have to let that soil rest. Mm -hmm. You're wearing it out. So that was folly. Mm -hmm. Are thinking then 
Yeah, and I've thought the same thing. You know, when I started 30 some years ago, one of the, one of the most common rotations that I worked with producers on was a corn, beans, wheat, and clover rotation. Very common across North Missouri. Maybe in some areas it was corn, beans, wheat, alfalfa. And so you think about it, you know, um, minus the tillage, they had all four plant types, you know, corn's a warm season grass, soybeans is a warm season broadleaf, uh, wheat's a cool season grass, clover's a cool season broadleaf. So it had all four plant types. It had two, two crops that fixed the nitrogen, the, the, the clover and the, and the soybeans both fixed nitrogen, took nitrogen from the atmosphere, put it into the soil. They had two crops, the wheat and the clover that had a living root all winter long. So minus probably a little excess tillage, that rotation really addressed almost all of the things that we teach from a soil health standpoint. So do you think those guys back 30, 40 years ago were saying, yeah, I've got a corn, bean, wheat, clover rotation because it's cool. It's soil health. No, they did it because unknowingly that was a rotation that worked for them. That, that followed it, it unknowingly followed the principles of soil health that we teach and it worked. It wasn't until programs, things came along that enabled producers to not use systems that, that built soil, you know, use a system, use a cropping system that can degrade the soil and you can still stay in business. That's when we really began to see serious degradation occur ac- across our country. So that degradation, the, the, the serious degradation that you talk about, that's, that's a very recent phenomenon. Well, I mean, it's always occurred, but, you know, you, you look back to, you know, you mentioned earlier, you know, civilizations in the history of the world that collapsed when they wore their land out, you know, and, and many of them, kind of the average that I've, that I've read about is, you know, one to 2000 years, you know, it took, it took older societies, a couple thousand years to wear their land out before their society collapsed and failed. Here we are in, in the U.S. in a hundred years, in most places, we've lost half to two thirds of our topsoil. Two thirds of it is gone in a hundred years. And, and what's allowed us to do that is technology, is, is diesel powered equipment, is fertility that actually enhances the burning of soil organic matter. And so because of that technology, we're going to, we're going to wear our land out and degrade our, our uh, land much faster than, than those ancient civilizations. That's pretty, pretty sobering. It is. There's, there's several studies that you can look at um, around the world um, that evaluate uh you know, how much time we have left to listen to David Montgomery, an author um, with of a couple different books. If you look at if you look at land degradation across the globe today, globally, they estimate that about two percent of our ag land becomes so degraded that that, that they abandon it. It's, it's either it's either rangeland that becomes so so degraded, it becomes deserts or cropland is abandoned. I can show you fields right here in Missouri and Iowa that literally the whole hillside won't grow anything two inches tall. It's so eroded. Two percent, back to that number, two percent, two percent globally is abandoned. If you extrapolate that out, that gives us globally 50, 60, 70 years left. 
you know, and, and you say, well, but that's the, that's the, that's Africa, right? That's China. That's some other places. And, and you're right. You know, here, here in the Midwest, Iowa, Illinois, it's going to take longer than, than 50 years to degrade those areas. But when the rest of the world degrades their, their landscapes and we've still got land here in, in the Midwest, where do you think they're all going to come? And do you think they're going to come and say, will you pretty please take care of us? I don't know about that. What are the principles we need as farmers to to stop this degradation and and hopefully kind of kind of turn the tide just a little bit? Well, I just I just tell everybody to start, you know, do something right. That's where they've got to start. Um, Start looking at the practices that they're using. Um, Start looking at those principles that we teach, you know, reduce disturbance, maximize ground cover, uh, introduce diversity, more diversity than they currently have, um, introduce a living root year round, add livestock as much as they can, particularly here in the Midwest. You know, our soils de- were developed under herbivory, under grazing. Um, and I think the fastest way we can restore those is is by integrating grazing back into those systems. It doesn't mean we have to convert everything back to perennial grasses, but even adding livestock onto those cover crops gives us a significant opportunity to improve that. So that's what we teach is we teach, look at your system now, how much disturbance are you doing? Can you reduce tillage passes? Can you eliminate tillage? Step one. Step two, keep ground cover all year long. Add a cover crop. Put a cover crop in after harvest so you can keep that soil covered. Principle number two. Number three, add diversity. If you've only got a corn and soybean rotation, what can you add as a cover crop that will add a different plant type to that rotation? Still stay in your corn bean rotation if you want to, but how do I add diversity into that corn and soybean rotation? And then, and then have a living root. Realize that it is a biological system. Building aggregates, sequestering nutrients, um, cycling nutrients for your crops is a biological system. We have to understand that whether even if you're a corn and soybean guy only, you have livestock that you have to feed and and take care of, soil livestock. And we have to put thought and purpose into all of our activities. How does everything we do, every step we take to grow those crops, how does it impact that soil biology? Peterson encourages farmers to carefully consider what resource concerns they may have on their soils. Those concerns can be a good place to start implementing the soil health principles he just talked about. Soon enough, growers who implement those principles should see economic benefits, such as reduced input costs and more profit per acre. Almost all the time, people are having having problems with a particular weed. They're having problems with an insect. They're having erosion problems. Um, and And you can almost always look at whatever that particular issue that they have and, and tie it right back to soil function and aggregate stability and plant succession and biological succession. And once you can can show this is the reason you're having that problem, some, some people jump. Some people are a little slower. Probably our, our number one best tool to get people interested in to convince them are those demos that we do, the slake demo, the infiltration demo. If you haven't seen those demos in person, Google them up and there's two or three videos on NRCS's website. So many producers, they know something is wrong, but they're scared to change. They're scared to 
to try to do something different. And, and you just have to start working with them to, to give them that confidence, go through their existing system, try to explain why they're doing the things they're doing. You know, they're, they're in most cases, they're trying to deal with a degraded soil condition, a degraded soil function. If we can improve that soil function, then guess what? Some of those issues go away. Right now, we're seeing a pretty tough time in agriculture, not a whole lot of, of cash floating around. So we're, we're seeing guys that are probably even a little, probably on two sides of the coin. Some of them are very reluctant to embrace anything new, but yet some of them are also thinking, I'm at the end of my rope. I can't keep doing this forever. So for that that first category, those who are just very reluctant to change um, their their practices, you can demonstrate and you can talk to them, but it's still kind of expensive to get into cover crops and and they're not seeing the benefit or an economic benefit to them. How do you how do you get that across? Too many times are we only consider economic benefit to be an increase in production. The vast majority of our folks will see when they get into a soil health system, will see their first economic benefit come in savings, not in increased yield. Many producers, I've got, I've got a guy uh, that I work with in Northern Iowa, Wayne Fredericks, has got great data that he presents in presentations. He, he's in a record-keeping program with almost 100 other producers, and um, they all submit all of their receipts for the year, everything, fuel, equipment, labor, inputs, everything into this record-keeping system. So it's all comparing apples to apples, right? Um, and it shows, he's a no-tiller, he shows a $92 per acre benefit, $92 per acre savings over everybody else in that record-keeping group. And his savings is all in equipment and labor. It's not an improved yield. His yields are about the same as everybody else, a couple bushels, couple bushels higher, but not significantly higher difference. But he's saving $90 an acre on fuel, on wear and tear on a tractor, on wear and tear on equipment, field cultivators and discs, and saving $27 an acre on labor to run all that equipment. So $90 an acre savings, boom, right off the bat. Other people are beginning to see reduced inputs. I've got a couple of guys I work with over by Kansas City that planted cover crops and didn't see an increase in yield, but they were able to eliminate a, a chemical application in year one because of the tremendous ground cover that reduced weed issues. Got a lot of guys that are, that are working further down in the south part of Missouri and in the in Arkansas in the Delta have a lot of of pretty tough resistant weeds, and I can show you pictures where there's there's a field that was half cover crops and half no cover crop, and and all the Palmer amaranth is on the side where there was no cover crop. So I think we've got to look at all the ways to evaluate the economics of it as opposed to just yield increase. If we can start reducing those those inputs, listen to a presentation last week by Adam Chapel, a large producer in, in uh, Arkansas, a wide variety of crops, and and his numbers were since they had in, in, instituted a soil health system, cover crops and no-till across their seven or eight thousand acres, they've reduced their inputs by forty to sixty percent. That's pretty significant. 
in a commodity world where it's the least cost producer that makes it. So we see these success stories, Adam Chappell, Gabe Brown, yep. uh, Dave Brandt, these guys that, that are doing amazing things that may seem unrealistic. But do you think that the guys can can get to a point where they're reducing their fertilizer uh, applications? Uh, certainly cover crops can help reduce weed pressure. And as we talk about herbicide-resistant weeds, that's a very appealing thing. But I've seen very few producers that couldn't begin to start reducing some of their inputs even in two or three years because we are dealing all of those more conventional practices, you know, all the chemical, all the added fertility, they have to do those because it's a degraded soil ecosystem. There's bare soil. Tillage is a stimulator for weeds. So when you quit tilling the soil, you're going to have less weeds. When you put ground cover on it, when you put a cover crop on it, you're going to have less weeds. When you quit tilling the soil and put a cover crop on it, you're going to quit leaching phosphorus and nitrogen out of your system. And so you can begin to reduce those inputs. Boy, if not, not in year one, pretty fast after that. And so what we really recommend to people is, is right off the bat, you know, maybe year two, start some strip trials in your fields. You know, 16 rows across the middle of a field that's got a half rate of nitrogen, a half rate of phosphorus. And start proving to yourself what condition your soils are in. Because th there's no doubt there's a huge difference between soil in, in the delta that's sandy, that's 1% organic matter, and soil in northern Iowa that may be degraded, but it's still 5% organic matter. It, it's most definitely not a one-size-fits-all across the whole U.S., but those principles that we teach, those principles are going to really be the same across the whole country. How you're going to implement them in sandy soils in the Delta is going to be slightly different than high organic matter soils in northern Iowa or more drought prone soils in western Kansas. Every place is going to be a little different, but I haven't really seen any place across the country that we can't make a pretty dramatic change. We hear all the time, well, that might work there, but it won't work here. And again, that's a mindset. I would submit that probably the biggest challenge that any farmer faces going into soil health is right between the ears. If you have convinced yourself that you can't, then it's probably not going to work. How do we tailor that, that program maybe to fit those drought-stricken areas of western Kansas or the sandy soils of the Missouri Boot Hill on up to every place that has a particular set of challenges? It's hard to know where to turn for the best advice. Well, what I always try to do is to look at their resource concerns. What are the problems that they have? You know, is it low organic matter? Is it erosion? Is it wind erosion, water erosion? Is it um, resistant weeds? You know, try, try to figure out what the resource concern that they that they have is, what's the biggest issue, and then start looking at their total system and try to figure out what thing can have the biggest impact on it. And again, it's not going to be a recipe that you can say this is going to work everywhere. You know, in western Kansas, water is going to be a little more uh, of an issue. You know, in, in Ohio, it's excess water in the spring, right? People are trying to get rid of water. So you're going to grow a cover crop for a very different reason in an area like that. That. And then in, in areas like Iowa, where, where they've got a lot of 
a lot of high yielding corn, understanding that carbon to nitrogen ratios and understanding that nutrient cycle is going to be really, really critical to that. So, you know, it's hard to sit here in, in, in a couple minutes and say this is how you do it across the whole country. But basically looking at the resource concerns you have in that particular location, trying to develop a, a system or a protocol, a set of practices that will address those resource concerns for that particular area. After the break, NRCS Soil Health Specialist Doug Peterson tells us that boosting soil productivity is quicker than you may think. So stick around. Want to see the latest in machinery, agronomy, and technology? Then tune in to the successful farming TV show every week on RFD-TV. Join me, Dave Moitz, and Lori Bedore, Jesse Scott, and Anna McConnell. This show delivers the latest trends, newest technology, and takes a look at machinery of yesterday and today. RFD-TV is on Dish Network, DirecTV, and most major cable providers. Find additional programming information at agriculture.com slash TV. Are you looking for new advanced technology for your farm operation? Need some advice on managing your farm or tips on finding the best machinery prices? You'll find all this and more in Successful Farming Magazine. Subscriptions are available online at agriculture.com. Visit agriculture.com and complete your subscription to Successful Farming Magazine today. Can we, first of all, fix our soils that are degraded? And can we even build them back to better than they were before? You bet. And I think, I think we can do both of those things really much faster than, than we've ever been led to believe. You know, we were taught years ago that it takes centuries to build organic matter back. And, and boy, we're seeing now that that's just not true. We see examples all across the country where people have regenerated their soil, maybe, maybe not taking it back to pre-European settlement areas. Um, although I think in some places we can do that. Most of our prairie soils, our prairie drive soils, were fairly high in organic matter. The areas that were more forested had lower soil organic matter. They, they had high carbon storage, but it was in the above ground trees. So I think in those areas, we can almost turn those, those timber derived soils into prairie derived soils. Um, so in those areas, you bet we can get them higher than pre-European settlement conditions. On his farm near Bethany, Missouri, Doug Peterson uses management-intensive grazing and high-density grazing, which reduces the need for purchased fertilizer. It also slashes hay needs to about one bale per cow per winter. This real-world experience is a big reason why Doug is a sought-after speaker in the soil health community. Thanks for joining us on the Soil Health Podcast from Successful Farming. I'm Bill Spiegel. 